Well, in the time that we have uh, together uh, over the course of uh, the next number of hours, uh, I want to share with you what I have been learning. Uh, I am a student of Islam. I don't believe that I could ever be really an expert on this subject. It is such a huge subject, and I got started rather late in life. I began studying Islam seriously in uh, the end of 2005. It was not as a result of 9-11. Uh, many people had gotten a real interest in Islam at that point in time, and, and uh, a lot of books flooded the market, some of which weren't really uh, worth the trees that gave their lives to their existence, but there was a lot of writing done. Um, that wasn't it. I was actually studying the persecuted church. And you cannot study the persecuted church without encountering the subject of Islam because in the modern world there is no persecutor of Christians from a religious perspective greater than that of the religion of Islam. And that then led me to start uh, listening to their apologists and realizing that, you know what, uh, the areas that they go after are the very same areas that I have studied. They go after the transmission of the text of Scripture. They go after the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, issues of church history and things like that. That's what I've been doing all along. But I felt a real uh, lack of understanding of where they're coming from. And I'll, I'll tell you right now, the, the vast majority of what I'll be sharing with you today uh, and tomorrow will be relevant first and foremost to the majority view of Islam, which is called Sunni Islam. The Sunnah is, the, in essence, the, the teaching based upon the life of Muhammad. And uh, Sunni Islam makes up between 85 and 90 percent of world Islam. There is a major, there are lots of major splits, but the major theological split amongst Muslims is between the Sunnis and the Shiites, Shia Islam. Uh, Shia Islam is a minority uh, at, at most 10-12% of the world's Islamic population. But interestingly enough, and has a political dynamic to it, uh, about 50% of the nations that sit on major oil reserves are run by Shia. Uh, and so you see, for example, we're quagmired in a situation where you, in essence, have us uh, in control of a nation that is really three nations that was held together by a brutal government. But there are three different areas. You have the Kurds in the north of Iraq, you've got the Sunnis in the middle, you've got the Shias in the south. And uh, they are more than happy, the Sunnis and the Shias, to blow each other up. Uh, and if we happen to get in the way, that's all the better. Uh, and so you, you have very deep divisions and strong animosity. And Shiism is a, is a whole another world. Some of the things that I'll be talking about, the history of the Quran, uh, the five daily prayers and things like that will be very similar. Uh, but Shiism has gone its own way. And so uh, there are many similarities, but there are also differences. Um, the vast majority of the Muslims that you will be speaking to, that you will be encountering, are Sunni. Um, you can always tell when you have a growing population of, of Muslims in your area. Uh, I have had the opportunity of teaching over the years for Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh, a couple of years ago, I was teaching a class on, uh, on Islam for them. And uh, on one day, I took the class on a field trip uh, to the mosque at Arizona State University. And as we were speaking with the imam, one of the things he mentioned was that all different kinds of Muslims pray in that mosque. Sunni, Shia, Wahhabi, 
various, I don't know if you mentioned any Druze or anything like that there, but uh, some of the very small groups. And uh, you can tell when a population is growing when that stops. In other words, if you go to Dearborn, Michigan, which is the largest concentration we have of, of Muslims in the United States right now as far as in one concentrated area, which is why it's becoming known as Dearbornistan, uh, you will, uh, and I've got some real stories about that place too, um, you will discover that the mosques are now dividing in, along the natural uh, theological divides where you have Sunni mosques and Shia mosques and things like that, and you have to have enough people for that to happen. In most places in the United States, that's not yet the case. Uh, estimates are anywhere from 2.7 to 3.3 million Muslims in the United States. I realize that uh, the President of the United States, shortly after his inauguration, said 7 to 9, but even his own CIA chuckled at that. They just did it behind their, <laughs> you know, that type of thing. Um, but uh, they, they obviously are a growing presence and certainly a political presence uh, as well along those lines. So that was where my, my study came from, and the vast majority of what I'll be talking to you about today is, is Sunni Islam. That's where my studies have been. I've only debated one Shiite. Uh, uh, I don't know how many debates I've done now, but uh, I just did a debate in, in London against Bassam Zawadi. I'll be debating Abdullah Kunda, Lord willing, in Sydney in October. Uh, and I have an open invitation, and I hope this all works out. I have an open invitation. Uh, to debate at the South London Mosque in London in April of next year, which is the largest mosque in the United Kingdom. Uh, or at least, I'm sorry, in London. There might be a larger mosque in Birmingham. But um, that'll be an interesting experience, a very, very interesting experience, especially depending on what topic we choose. Uh, if they choose something like Muhammad was a false prophet, I'm not really sure I'll be walking out of that place in one piece. But uh, we, will, we will see what happens in that situation. But... Uh, be that as it may, as I said, I, I continue to learn. Uh, I continue to study. There is so much to learn, so much to study, uh, that uh, it, is, it is truly amazing. And it has introduced me to one of, my, one of my greatest concerns, and that is there's a lot of less than helpful Christian literature out there on, on Islam. Um, let's face it, the majority of what we see and what we hear comes to us from Fox News. And Fox News, you may like Fox News, but Fox News is not your best source of theological insight. Um, and uh, I am concerned that there is a willingness on the part of my fellow Christian believers to succumb to a level of fear-mongering when it comes to Islam. How can we not? We all can remember what it looked like when the Twin Towers came down. I had been in those buildings. Um, we hear, we, we see pictures every day of smoldering car bombs and, and buildings and things like that. And we just, it's very easy for us to, to paint a billion people on the basis of what those people are doing. Um, you have a substantial Islamic population in, uh, in the Houston area. In fact, one of the Sunni, and I, I will try to remember, and if I don't, just somebody wave at me to define any of the terms that I use. Islam is an interesting religion because it doesn't matter what language you speak. You basically need to learn a minimally functional Arabic vocabulary to follow any meaningful Islamic lecture. It's, it's very interesting. We'll see one of the reasons for that in just a few minutes. But uh, this gentleman is a Salafi. The, the, the Salafi basically are fundamentalist Muslims 
which means they're, they're, they're right on the border of radicalization, and we'll get a chance to talk more about that as well. Um, they, they, they follow the first few generations of Muslims after the Prophet Muhammad as being the primary guides as to what Islam should really be. And you might compare that a little bit with uh, Christians who look very heavily upon the early church as a source of their insight as to what apostolic teaching should be. And uh, his name is uh, Sheikh Yasser Qadi, and he grew up right here in, in Houston. And I have listened to hours and hours and hours of his lectures. Uh, that's one of the things that I've tried to do that I think has been very helpful, is I listen to Muslims talking to Muslims. Not just to the Muslims talking to Christians. That's one thing. But it's, you, you really learn when you listen... Where, where would you want people to learn about what Christians really believe? You'd want to listen to what Christians say to Christians. You'd want to listen to our sermons, to ourselves, etc., etc. Well, uh, that's what I've had to learn to do, and it's been a, it's been a, a learning curve uh, to, to get there, I can assure you. But uh, here is a guy who knows his, his faith, and uh, I came this close to getting him to do a book with me. I, I, oh, I, he, he just decided not to do it, but... I was really hoping that, that we would have a give-and-take book on uh, the Trinity and Tawheed. I'll, I'll be def- defining Tawheed here in, in a few minutes. But uh, he decided not to do it. But he grew up right here in Houston. So you have major mosques here. You have a major population here. The majority of those with whom you'd be dealing with are, are Sunni. Uh, but clearly, if they've come from another land, if they come from an a, uh, Islamic land, uh, they're going to interact with you differently than if they grew up here. And there is a wide variety of Islamic expression in the world. There are Sufis, and Sufi is not just a group different than Sunni. You can be a Sunni and be a Sufi, or you can be a Shia and be a Sufi. It's sort of like being a charismatic Anglican. Okay, Sufi is like charismatic. I mean, that's, it, there's a danger in making equations, but I'm just giving you sort of an example. And the Sufis tend to be much more spiritually oriented and significantly less um, uh, militarily oriented, I guess would be the term we could use. Um, And you have liberal Muslims. There is one major difference, though. We have lots of, quote-unquote, liberal Christians. Now, some of us would say that a lot of what's called liberal Christianity isn't even related to Christianity. Uh, But uh, we generally do not uh, declare war upon liberal Christians uh, in the sense of going and burning down their institutions and blowing up their teachers. Uh, There is liberal Islam, but not in an Islamic country. Liberal Islam only exists in the West. Um, And I've often thought, you know, does it ever sort of cross people's mind uh, as they're promoting Islam that that if their religion became predominant, there would be a bunch of their own people that would have to leave because they're they're too liberal? Um, You know, you... You can't believe some of the things that are taught by Muslims at Cambridge or here in the United States. You can't believe those things and teach those things in Cairo, Egypt. You wouldn't live. You literally would not live. You would be executed. And so it is interesting that once Islamic culture and law take control, uh, and there would be some who would say there is no nation on earth where that actually has fully happened. That was certainly Osama bin Laden's whole point. Osama bin Laden's whole point was that Sharia, the, the law of Allah, must be established for mankind to live in peace with God and with each other. 
and he was convinced that Muhammad was a prophet and the Quran was his word uh, and therefore that law had to be established. And he did not believe that any place, including Saudi Arabia, where a non-Muslim cannot even go into Mecca, not even allowed in Mecca, uh, that that was still not a truly Sharia land. And that's why the Saudis were more than happy uh, with what happened just a few weeks ago, uh, even though he was himself a, um, uh, you know, very closely connected with Saudi Arabia. Why should you be here this evening? Why should even the young people be interested in what I have to say this evening? Um, well, you can't turn the television on without having to deal with the reality of Islam in our world. Western society is not responding well to Islam. And one thing we all should be amazed at is that Western society is engaging in an attitude called dimitude. D-H-I-M-M-I-T-U-D-E. Dimitude. A dimi is one of the subject people of Islam, the people of the book. Jews and Christians are dimmies. If we pay the jizya tax, then we are protected. We're pretty much given a second class place in life too, but we are protected under Islam. Well, Western societies, for some reason, especially you look over at Europe, are automatically adopting the attitude of dimmies. Uh, while Christian people in England, for example, are being brought up on charges, if you know about the family, for example, that had a bed and breakfast, and they were brought up on charges because they didn't want to have a homosexual couple using the bed and breakfast. Well, how dare you? And yet there are places in England today where the police don't even go, where homosexuals would not even be safe with their lives because of the existence of Sharia. Um, the, the, the reality is Western society will not criticize Islam because it's afraid of Islam, but it will persecute Christians. And that's what secularism cannot stand in front of religious belief. And the problem is most of the religious beliefs that secular societies see is Protestant liberalism, which surely doesn't believe anything at all. And they're scared of Islam. And so we have people being brought up on hate crimes charges for saying anything about Islam, but the Muslims are never brought up on hate crimes charges uh, in a situation like that. And so it is a very, very frustrating situation that we encounter in that, in that kind of a situation. So just keeping some of that in mind, here's our problem. We normally are talking past each other. We normally don't even have the, the tools to be able to tell whether we're talking to a radicalized Muslim or whether we're talking to uh, a, a moderate Muslim, whether we're talking to a, a Muslim who's culturally Islamic but not really theologically so. We, we talk right past each other. Uh, for example, how many here have read the entirety of the Quran? One hand. Now let me act as a Muslim for a second. Did you read it in Arabic? No. Then you didn't read the Quran. From, and you know that probably from the Islamic perspective. Uh, then you didn't read the Quran. But you've at least read an English translation of the Quran. One person. And if I was addressing a Muslim group, it would be about the same percentage that's read the Bible. Now isn't that interesting? That ten years after 9-11, you look at a... And, and we would be considered, I mean, 
a lot of Christian churches consider us to be sort of the, the geeky people. We study theology. You're at a John Bunyan conference, for crying out loud. <laughs> and yet we still, what do we know about Islam as far as its source documents? And I could just start, start, start talking about some of the, the basic other documents, the Sahih al-Bukhari, Sahih al-Muslim, the Hadith literature, and the number of Christians that have actually read these materials starts getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, and you have the same thing on the other side. We need to understand what Muslims believe. We need to understand what Orthodox Islam is so we understand why Muslims do what they do. But there's one major thing to keep in mind. Islam and Christianity have many connections. There are many sections, if you've read the Quran, there are many sections of the Quran that sound a lot like something that came out of Isaiah. There is only one true God, creator of heaven and earth, emphasis upon monotheism, all of that stuff. There are connections. They have a, 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 a doctrine of the fitra. Uh It's the conscience of man. Very close connections to Romans chapter 1, the image of God created man and so on and so forth. With differences, but very interesting connections. And yet, there are some very fundamental differences that unfortunately I think a lot of people in political authority don't get and do not understand. Islam is a religio-political system or a political-religio system depending on whether it's in the majority or the minority. And the political cannot be and will never be separated out from Islam. It can't be. It is, it, is, it is part of its warp and woof. It would be like taking the Son of God out of Christianity and say what you've got left is still Christianity. No, it's not. When Islam is in the minority, as it is here in the United States, the emphasis is on the religious aspect and the political aspect is in the background. Once they reach about 20 or 30 percent of the population, the political aspect becomes predominant. And we're seeing this in Europe at this time, France at this time. There are over 700 zones in France right now that are no-go zones. Where basically Sharia is in charge there. The police don't even go in there unless they have you know, like armed uh, or, or armored assistance. Uh, as the population grows, the emphasis on the religious aspect diminishes at the expense of the influx of the political aspect. And so... The, the role of Sharia and law in Islamic thought is extremely important. Christianity brings certain moral absolutes, but it does not demand a particular, even, in a, even American Christians need to hear this too, does not demand a particular governmental form. Christianity existed long before the Constitution was written and will exist, thankfully, long after it's gone which at the rate our judges are slashing away at it won't be very long. Uh, Christianity can cross over borders, cross over cultures. You have Chinese Christians today. You have North Korean Christians today. They're persecuted, but they're there. Christianity does not have to bring a societal norm with it, along with its dress and everything else, for Christianity to exist. It's one of the major, major major differences. So, we need to have an understanding of what Islam is about. We need to understand the theology of Islam to be able to understand why the politics are what they are. And I think once we have an understanding of that, then we can, with a little bit more intelligence, watch the world's events and react to them in a properly Christian way and certainly be able to um, speak to the Muslims as we have an opportunity to do so. So let's start with the five pillars of Islam. 
the five pillars of Islam. There are six basics of Sunni belief and the five pillars of Islam will cover each one of those. Uh, five pillars of Islam. The Shahada. The Shahada is the statement of faith by which you become a Muslim. There is only one true God, Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. Now, I have said that many, many times in my life, but I'm not a Muslim. Partly because you can say that all you want and you'll never become a Muslim. Because in Islam, for the Shahada to be said appropriately and properly, you cannot say it in English, you cannot say it in French, or German, or anything else. It must be said, La ilaha illallah wa Muhammadan Rasulallah. It has to be said in Arabic. And so they will actually walk you through that. And this is the fundamental affirmation. We'll expand upon that in just a moment. You have the Salat, the prayers, the five daily prayers. The Fajr prayer pretty soon will be as early as like 4.15 in the morning in some areas. Uh, you can get iPod and, and Android apps to tell you exactly what time the prayers are, exactly which direction to face, all that neat fun stuff now. Uh, Salm is fasting the month of Ramadan. We'll look at that in a moment. Zakat, the giving of alms. And Hajj, the pilgrimage. Let's start with the Shahada. I want to play for you a video. Uh, Mike was asking me if I specifically had this, and I, I, I put this in all my presentations. This video is meant to disturb you. Uh, I don't see how anyone as a Christian could watch this without being disturbed for a couple of reasons. One of which is how similar it looks to what we ourselves see in evangelicalism. But also because of the differences. What you're watching, uh, I chose this particular gentleman because, uh, especially back in 2005, 2006, I was preparing for a debate that I did with uh, probably the leading Islamic apologist in the world today, Shabir Ali, uh, at Biola University in May of 2006. And so I'm, I'm listening to Ahmed Didat debates, and I'm listening to uh, Zakir Naik and, and all these other people. And I, I, my wife would come home and say, hey, honey, listen to what Zakir Naik said. And I'd fire something up, and she'd just look at me and go, I have no idea what he's saying, because he has such a thick foreign accent. Um, I picked this guy because, his, while his name is Khalid Yasin, he's from Brooklyn. So he's nice and easy to understand. In fact, he'd do well on TBN. He really would, as you will see. He would do well on the Trinity Broadcasting Network. And knowing TBN, they might not really detect anything. Uh, It's frightening when you think about it. But um, anyway, um, this took place, uh, I think, around 2006, 2007 uh, in Sydney, Australia. He had been giving a three-day seminar, I've listened to all of it, and it was primarily an anti-Christian seminar. I mean, just horrible arguments against the Trinity and misrepresentations of history. And, oh, it was, it was bad stuff, but that's, that's what he did. And this is at the end. What you're going to see is, in essence, an Islamic altar call. Uh, and you're going to see what it looks like to become a Muslim. This is in a Western nation. It's interesting, in 2009, I got to go down to Sydney, like I said, I'll be back there next year, or uh, in October, and I got to lecture at Moore College, and some of the students in the class that I lectured to had been in the audience, so they actually watched this themselves. So here is an Islamic altar call. Here is how a person becomes a Muslim. 
Get him saying something different. Just saying something different. Come back to this.
محمد رسول الله اشهد ان لا اله الا الله واشهد ان محمدا عبده عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وسلم امين Well, there you go. That is how you become a Muslim. You repeat the Shahada, those first words, uh, the first portion there, there is only one true God, Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. And you do so in Arabic. Now, note that I don't think anybody standing in front of Khalid Yasin that evening would have been able to tell if he was having them say, I order a cheeseburger without pickles in Arabic. They would have no way of knowing. But the point was that a confession that brings you into right relationship with God has to be said in a particular language. That's one of the major differences. Did you notice how the men were, were dressed? How Khalid Dawson was dressed? How were they dressed? Like Muhammad would have been dressed in the 7th century. And that's what is bringing so much of the conflict into the world is that the Sharia, the Islamic law, which developed in the centuries after the time of Muhammad himself, there are different schools of thought within it, there are differences within it, but just taking it as a whole, the Sharia involves a political and cultural element that has to be brought into a society. And that's what's causing the conflict. Because Sharia addresses all of life. I was, I was attended a debate in Norfolk, Virginia a couple of years ago, I think it was 2008, and a former Christian, an African-American gentleman, who had become a Muslim, was debating a former Muslim, Nabil Qureshi, Dr. Nabil Qureshi. And one of the arguments that the Muslim gentleman made was that in Christianity, he had no guidance as to how to live. Now, maybe in the church he was in, that might be the case, but you need to understand that from the Islamic perspective, guidance as to how to live is exhaustive. Absolutely every element of human existence, at least human existence up to the 7th century, that's what the problem is, is covered. What hand you shake hands with, what hand you use to cleanse yourself with in the bathroom, uh, how many dates to eat at one point, at one time, it, it's all covered. It is an exhaustive system of life. And there are some people who like that. There are some people who like to be told exactly. And Christianity is not that, if that's what you think guidance is. Now, of course, from my perspective, the person that needs to be told exactly how to do everything are our children, not our adults. Adults learn overarching principles and make application in life. And that's what I see as being given to us in Christianity. 
But from their perspective, oh no, uh, Christianity just doesn't give us enough at all. And so that, that has to be kept in mind. So the Shahada also introduces us to the subject of Tawheed. Tawheed means the unity, oneness, simplicity of Allah. There is only one true God, only one God worthy of worship. And we certainly agree with that, but you need to understand that for the Muslim, that involves, by definition, a form of Unitarianism. That is, there is one being of God and there is only one person of God. We believe in monotheism. We are monotheists, but we are not Unitarians. And that's where much of the debate takes place at that very point in time. But from their perspective, Tawheed is the central aspect. And of course, it grew out of a polytheistic situation in Mecca. There were 360 idols in the Kaaba uh, at the day, in the days of Muhammad. Uh, for the first portion of his life, from the beginning of his prophetic life in 610, until the Hijra in 622 when he leaves Mecca. He is a minority prophet who is being persecuted. And about two-thirds of the Quran comes from that period. Um, as far as the number of surahs are concerned, we'll talk more about the Quran. I'll pass the Quran around either tonight or, or tomorrow, uh, depending on, on, our, on our time frame there. Okay? So that introduces us to that. We'll focus a little bit more on that a little bit later on. Once again, the Salat, the prayers in Indonesia... You do not ask someone generally if they are a Muslim. Uh, Islam, you've heard many, many, you know, you probably have heard enough people on Fox News that say, Islam means peace. No, it doesn't. Uh, that's, as soon as I hear someone saying that, I realize I'm, I'm listening to a propagandist. And ironically, uh, I was listening to a lecture by Sheikh Yasser Qadi, that was prior to 9-11, and he said, Islam does not mean peace. And anyone who says it does is a propagandist. So you've got the, uh, you know, I, can, I can document this. When I was in seminary, there wasn't any, any argument about this, because that was the 1980s, uh, and I was taught then, and it remains true to this day, Islam means submission. Now, as a result, you have peace with God if you are submitted to him, but the submission is very similar to the submission that is given by a king who is conquered by another king, and he puts his, the conquering king puts his foot on the neck of the conquered king, and he is in submission, and therefore has peace. But that's the kind of peace we're talking about. It is one of submission to Allah. Uh, so whenever you hear something, oh, religion of peace, religion of peace, um, no, it's religion of submission to Allah. Uh, and certainly... That's an element of our own faith. Anyone who's a rebel against God does not have peace with God. How do we have peace with God? Only through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, can you rebel against Jesus Christ and claim to have peace with God through Him? No, you need to be in submission. Repentance toward Him. Faith in Him. Now, how that all comes about is where we end up differing. You cannot put someone in a position of submission to God. It has to be done by the Spirit of God changing their heart and their mind. That's one of the fundamental differences. But uh, in, uh, in Indonesia, getting back to my point here, in Indonesia, you ask, do you do the prayers? Do you do the prayers? That's, how, that's the self-identification, is do you do the prayers? And if you've ever lived in an Islamic country, 
where Islam really is the majority, practicing Islam is the majority, uh, you know that the society can come to a screeching halt five times a day during the time of prayer. Once the, the, sound, the call comes out from the minaret, uh, then the people stop and they roll out their prayer rugs and they, they do their prayers. And it's sort of a measure of the devotion of that society as to how many people do that and how many people are not doing that. Uh, for example, there are massive mosques in Tehran that sit empty the majority of the time uh, because they have lost the younger generation, uh, which is leading to many of the uh, societal pressures in, in that nation as well and the dangers that are associated therewith. Uh, the month of Ramadan, the fasting of the month of Ramadan, is a fascinating uh, thing as well. I'm going to need to try to do something here real quick and hopefully get this back fairly easily without messing it up. Good, it works. Um, fasting in the month of Ramadan is, is it, it's interesting because uh, Mike was telling me the first time I remember almost anything about Ramadan was when Houston was in the NBA Finals. Y'all remember why? Hakeem Elijah won. Some of the games were during the day or at least before nightfall. And in Ramadan, the faithful Muslim not only does not eat, but does not drink. From the time you can hold a white and a black thread up and distinguish between them in the morning until the same situation at night. That's the you know, 7th century version of it. Now you've got a GPS to tell you, but uh, that's sort of how they, how they did it then. Eating or drinking. Now realize something. Uh, you may notice Ramadan keeps moving around in our calendar year. It leaps forward 11 to 12 days per year. Why? Because Islam uses a lunar calendar rather than a solar calendar. And so they have 12 lunar months, which are 28 to 29 days long, depending upon when the new moon is sighted in certain places. And so Ramadan is 28 to 29 days long, and it keeps moving up about 11, on average, 11 days in our year. Which means, I think this year it was in August, uh, it will soon, September maybe, maybe getting close to August, early August maybe. Um, very soon, Ramadan will be in July. Can you imagine what it's like to be an observant Muslim in Saudi Arabia and not able to drink anything, including water, from sunrise to sunset? It's one thing when it's in January. But it's another thing when it's in July in Saudi Arabia. That is something else. And of course, the commentators back when, uh, and in fact, I was asking Mike, do you all still have a professional uh, basketball team? I'm not really certain. I didn't hear anything about them this year, so it sounds like they did about as well as the Suns did, actually. But um, uh, the commentators were commenting on the fact that, you know, What's it's going to be like in the fourth quarter playing an entire NBA-level basketball game and you haven't been able to drink any water? That's called mega dehydration. And uh, so uh, that was where I first ran into the subject of, of the fasting in the month of Ramadan. Uh, very quickly, zakat is the giving of alms. It, if you want to know how they figure it out, it's 2.5% of anything you possess for over a year. And who's it given to? Well, it depends if you're in Islamic State. It's given, it's given to the state. But if you're not in Islamic State... Different groups have differences to exactly how you give zakat and who you give it to and who's a proper 
person we give it to, and things like that. Finally, you have the Hajj, the pilgrimage. And I think, uh, let me see real quick here. Yeah. Sound? It's a necessary precondition of This is an Islamic presentation on how to do the prayers. Notice the language in which the prayers are said. Doesn't matter what your native language is. The woman is not speaking. She is behind the man. He is singing the first surah of the Quran called Al-Fatiha, the opening. The path of those whom thou hast favored, not the path of those who earn thy anger, nor of those who go astray. I hope I remember to tell you that's the Jews and the Christians. That's the Jews and the Christians. What hand is over what hand is prescribed in the law? It goes on from there. Uh, it's a lengthy video. Uh, VHS, who VHS video, but uh, a lengthy video because each of the prayers is different during the course of the day. The point is, it has to be done, again, in a language other than what you yourself might know. See, one of the, one of the problems is a lot of American Christians have the idea that all Muslims are Arabic. Between 16 and 19% of the world's Muslims are Arabic. That means the vast majority are not. And in fact, the largest uh, Muslim nation in the world, population-wise, is what? Indonesia. Indonesia. Uh, and so... Uh, Asian and Pacific Asian 
Islam is huge, and it's primarily Sunni. That's why Sunni Islam is, is certainly the world's majority. Um, but we, we got to observe the prayers when we were uh, at, the, at the mosque at ASU. And, and it is interesting, Surat al-Fatiha is a part of each one. And there is no question that the, according to the Hadith, which are the sayings of Muhammad collected about 200, 270 years after the time of Muhammad, according to the Hadith, when Muhammad was asked, who are those who earn God's anger and those who go astray? Those who earn God's rank, anger are the Jews. And those who go astray are the Christians. And so the concept being that in all of the prayers, let us not be like the Jews and the Christians, is what is being expressed in the opening words of Surat al-Fatiha, in the closing words of Surat al-Fatiha, uh, which is um, relevant to an understanding of how we can get along with one another, in other words. In other words. Um, so after, the, I'm sorry, about after the, the prayers, uh, then we also have the concept of Hajj, and I, and I had forgotten that I had that one in there. Here is a brief clip on uh, Hajj. What you're going to see is the Kaaba uh, in the Grand Mosque in Mecca. It is a black stone build. It's not, well, it's black. It's made of different materials. This, it's the direction toward which prayer is offered. Today you can get uh, apps for your, your iPhone or Android or whatever that will give you the exact direction to pray so that you're facing Mecca. Now, interestingly enough, for a while, the Muslims faced Jerusalem, and then they changed the direction to Mecca, allegedly during Muhammad's life. Now, ironically, um, archaeological digs before, and Islam will not allow archaeological digs in their lands any longer that are relevant to Islam, which is interesting. But before they were under Islamic control, archaeological digs back during British periods of ascendancy in the 1800s and things like that, some of the earliest mosques that were discovered, the Qibla, you heard her mentioning the Qibla, that's the direction. If you go into a mosque, there will be a, a, basically an arrow, and that's where everyone faces, and that will be aimed directly toward Mecca. I think it's 31 degrees from north uh, in Phoenix. Um, the Qibla of those earliest mosques that date as late as 705, was not toward Mecca. It was toward Jerusalem. Which may indicate some editing in the text of the Quran because the change of that direction is found in the Quran which allegedly is completely finished by the time Muhammad dies in 632. That's a really interesting issue that much more light could be shed on early Islamic origins if the Muslims themselves would allow it, but they will not. Uh, Christians are always open to that kind of stuff. Uh, but there's a fundamental difference in the attitude between the, the two sides on, on that. But what you're going to see is the Kaaba. The, the, the building itself is, has been built and rebuilt and built and rebuilt and built and rebuilt over and over again. I think the last time it was rebuilt was only like 10 or 15 years ago. Um, so, and I have a video of the inside of it, and I keep forgetting to insert it into this presentation. I apologize, but maybe I can track it down before tomorrow. But um, that's not what makes the, the Kaaba the Kaaba. What makes the Kaaba the Kaaba is the black stone. The black stone in one corner of the Kaaba allegedly fell down from heaven itself. When it allegedly fell down from heaven, it was white, but it has turned black because of the sins of mankind. Um, and I remember during the last Ramadan season, um, when uh, last Hajj season, I'm sorry, uh, 
when they were talking about going and making pilgrimage and you see all those hundreds of thousands of people walking seven times around the Kaaba. Uh, it's a part of the Hajj where you, it's in Mecca and Medina and, and running back and forth between hills and throwing, uh, throwing stones at the devil. There's a, there's a lot of stuff that you do. I have an entire video presentation uh, from the Muslims on exactly how you do Hajj and how you wear the clothing and can you carry a cell phone while you're in Hajj. I mean, it's, just, it's really a, a fascinating thing in modern times. But... Um, uh, I was reading some blogs, and an engineer. Do we have any any like mechanical engineers or anything like that uh, here? Okay, that'll admit it. Okay, one geek, two geeks. Okay, thank you. All right, uh, thank you very much. Um, some guy who was like a mechanical engineer had put up a blog on, on where to think about think about a hundred thousand people walking around the Kaaba at one time. It sort of has fluid dynamics aspects to it. And so he had figured out, sort of like hydraulics, um, where to put yourself in the group so you had the best chance of being pushed closest to the black stone so that you might be able to touch it and kiss it. There's an entire blog from a Muslim on on the best way mechanically to get yourself into the group that would push you because you're you're basically, that's all it is, just this massive crowd, uh, to get closest to the black stone. That's what makes the Kaaba special. Okay, so let's take a take a look at this clip. The Islamic pilgrimage to Mecca is compulsory for all Muslims in good health and with sufficient funds to make the journey. The Hajj is the foremost of all Muslim rituals, even if less than ten percent of all Muslims ever manage to complete it. The Hajj's importance lies in its allowing the believer to approach the center of the world as well as the place where the Quran's divine revelations began and continue for about 12 years. 22 years. The performer of Hajj does not only reenact Muhammad's ritual, he or she also recalls acts of important people in Muslim history. The rituals performed around the Kaaba reenact when the prophet Abraham and Ishmael transformed the Kaaba into the sacred place of worship and peace. In spite of some physical hardships, pilgrims who complete the Hajj consider it one of the greatest spiritual experiences of their lives. Many Muslims regard the Hajj as one of the great achievements of civilization because it brings together people from around the world and focuses them upon a single goal. A believer is required to make the pilgrimage at least once in his or her lifetime. We'll like to edit that last part out. Uh, so there you have the Hajj, and uh, again, only a small percentage of Muslims actually complete it. It seems very clear to me that it harkens back uh, to a time when Muhammad did not foresee uh, a day when Islam would be a worldwide religion. Um, but uh, still, it is uh, uh, something that the Muslim desires to do, and if they have the money and health to do so, they are required to do so. Uh, those are the five, the five pillars. Very, very quickly, and we'll, we'll sort of summarize these, and then we'll pick up at this point uh, tomorrow afternoon. The six articles of belief of Sunni Islam, the six articles of belief. Belief in Allah, belief in all the prophets and messengers, and notice that is plural. Islam believes there have been thousands and thousands of prophets and messengers that have been sent to mankind. And the one thing that unites all of them is that they all bore the message of la ilaha illallah, that there is only one God. This would include Moses, 
This would include David. This would include Jesus. From the Islamic perspective, these were all Muslims. Uh, They believe that Islam is the primitive religion and that everything else is a variation and departure from uh, Islam. Okay? Uh, So, uh, they do demand belief in all the prophets, but the problem comes, well, what if those other prophets said something that's contradictory to what Muhammad said? That gets you into the issue of the reliability of the records of any of those other prophets. That's a modern issue. We'll get into that a little bit more later on. Belief in all the prophets and messengers. Belief in angels and jinn. The jinn, from which we get genie. You know, Barbara Eden, remember? Those of you who are old enough to remember that. Um, The jinn. Do you ever wonder why a genie turned into a cloud of smoke and then got sucked in a very, very bad special effect uh, in comparison to what we could do today on our own personal computers uh, into a little bottle? Uh, Well, because uh, in Islamic belief, jinn are a race of beings that are created of smokeless uh, fire. Uh, And uh, they are much faster than human beings. They're much stronger than human beings, but they're not as smart as human beings. And I didn't know this until I was listening to a lecture by Sheikh Yasser Qadi, but there are Muslim jinn, and there are Christian jinn, and there are Jewish jinn. I'm not sure what a jinn charismatic Christian worship service looks like, but hey, um, I, I don't know. Uh, but uh, belief in that angelic spiritual realm, uh, many of the... Uh, invocations that a Muslim will give like before going into a bathroom is to protect them from the jinn because the jinn love bathrooms. I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up. Uh, the belief, for example, Muslims as a part of, of wadu, of cleansing, will snort water up into their nose and, and, and expel it. And the reason is Muhammad clearly taught that one of the places that jinn uh, dwell is in the nasal cavities. And so you have to cleanse the nasal cavities prior to prayer. Um, and so belief in the angelic and spiritual realm. Belief in the books, Kedavim, plural, sent by God. And many books have been sent down. Two of the books were sent down were the Tarat and the Injil, the Torah and the Gospel. Now you'll have all sorts of arguments as to what those were. But the Quran specifically makes reference to the Torah and to the Injil, and that these were not all. They were sent down by God. Uh, obviously, modern Muslims believe that they have been altered since then, but that raises other issues as well. You must believe in the Day of Judgment, and it has nothing to do with Harold Camping at all. Uh, this was a belief of Muslims long before Family Radio, or May 21st, or October 21st, or wherever else. That may end up going uh, after October 22nd. What a sad, sad thing that is. Uh, you know I debated him. Uh, you're looking at the only person that ever debated Harold Camping. Right uh, July of 2009. Um, it's, we've got it on our website if you want to listen. Uh, I offered to, to do a, a month's worth of teaching on how to actually handle the Bible uh, starting May 22nd, but he didn't take me up on it. I haven't, I haven't gotten any phone calls or anything. 
And finally, it believes in destiny, qadr, predestination. Uh, the Muslim believes that the date of one's death, well, most Muslims, I'm referring primarily here to Sunni Muslims in, in Islamic countries, uh, believe that the date of one's death is inscribed upon one's forehead on the day of one's birth. And uh, one of the most common phrases that Muslims know is, Inshallah, if God wills. Um, this has developed into a form of fatalism that has resulted in the fact that uh, the, the reality is in most Muslim nations where Islam is vastly predominant, today, Islam once created a vibrant civilization. It did. There was a period of time, 200 to 500 years after Muhammad, where there was a vibrant civilization. Um, but it did not have the foundation to continue. And it collapsed upon itself. And what you have in most Islamic countries today uh, is, is a very backwards civilization. Um, and many people are fatalists. They are not hard workers. If God wills, if God wills, uh, you know, God is God's, you know, controlled all of this. And, and there's a vast difference between Qadr and our belief in the sovereignty of God. Because our God ordains the ends as well as the means. And he is personally involved in his own self-glorification in that divine decree. So our decree is no less exhaustive. Precious in the sight of God are the death of the saints. And my days were written in his book from the time I was formed in my mother's womb. There's no question about that. But that's a vastly different attitude than, eh, well, you know, the angels show up when they show up. That's just sort of how it is. Uh, we are told to, to glorify God in everything that we do, and that includes the work ethic that we have and everything else. Uh, so, but belief in destiny, Qadr, is a part and parcel of uh, these these beliefs. Now, I was asked to leave enough time. This is just a, this is. I normally cover everything we just covered in 20 minutes. Just go whoosh, because I I mean I normally have an hour to an hour and a half to present this entire opening thing, and I have. I, I won't get through everything, but I'm going to try to give you as much as I possibly can the amount of time that we have. Uh, it's a whole lot easier for you, trust me, for me to go a little bit more slowly. <laughs> uh, especially when these are not necessarily terms that are familiar to all of you. There may be some of you that are going, yeah, tell me something I don't already know. But we've got to start someplace in hopes that you'll be able to uh, uh, assimilate everything. But uh, when we start again tomorrow, I'm going to take some questions. And when we start again tomorrow, we will start off with uh, some more clips. Oh, oh, oh. We got got just a couple minutes for these. Yeah, let's yeah let's let's do these. Let's do these. Let's do these. Let's uh, we, we've got try to try to wrap up at 8:30. Let me give you an example of Muslim mindset when hearing the Bible and Christian faith. These are clips, so we'll need the uh, when a Muslim comes to another country. Sometimes we sit back and listen to what they're saying and go, really, and our Western haughtiness kicks in. This man had listened to a debate I had done. Well, he had listened to part of the debate I had done. Actually, yeah. 
This is the first day that I ever did against a Muslim. It was before I was studying Islam. It was 1999. It was pre-9-11. And in the middle of my presentation, all the Muslims got up and walked out of the building and left their backpacks behind. Now you think about what you'd be thinking about at that particular point in time. Coming home, Lord! Here we come! Um, it was prayer time. And they just got up and walked out. Right in the middle of my presentation. So... Yeehaw, hi. See you later, folks. And then they come in while the other guy is speaking. So, anyway, uh, I was banging the deity of Christ. And then we had audience questions at the end. And all the audience questions were fascinating. Uh, if you want to have a follow-up, guys, uh, get the DVD of my debate with Hamza Abdul-Malik. Uh, because the audience questions were very, very insightful. Here was one of them. And ask yourself a question. If you had a Muslim raise these objections to you, how would you respond to what he had to say. Yes, my question to the doctor. I heard you repeating many times you saying need the creator about Jesus. Peace and blessings be upon him because we mostly believe in Jesus, the mighty prophet of God. I heard you many times you saying he's the creator of everything and all things. So I want you to explain to me if it's possible if he's the creator of everything when Jesus, which I'm going to be around him, he walked and died, the twelve tree was his companion. The twelve tree was his companion. And he wants to eat some food. And the following master, the food is not in season. So if you are God, how he will know if you can eat the tree? How he know how he goes to eat? How know if what's in season or what's not in season? If you can eat everything. Okay. And if the spirit was not in season and he died, first of all, we don't expect God to be hungry, he wants to eat, but you Christians said God chose to do so, so that's your faith. But I'm saying, even if he was God and faith is not in season, why put him order the tree to bring faith? Okay. Is God the way to get everything? Okay, thank you. He did so because the picture represented the people of Israel. He made the application to people of Israel look like they have fruit, but they do not. It was a clear application to make. Secondly, he did eat fruit because the word became flesh. He became hungry. He became tired. Because as the New Testament, as it was written, clearly indicates, Jesus Christ was the God-man. The eternal Logos became flesh in both among us. He was a true man. He ate food. He became tired. He slept. He grew, etc., etc. Christians have always believed that one because we believe all the New Testament teaches. So, how would you respond to the fig tree argument? <laughs> and it took me a little while. Fig tree. Oh, fig tree. All right. I, I, I was literally sitting there going, "How am I going to answer this?" And. This is actually a Quranic argument. This is our argument that's pretty much taken from the Quran, popularized by a man by the name of Ahmadidat. And in essence, what he's saying is, if Jesus was God, how come he didn't know what season it was for figs? Because the disciples said, it's not the season for figs. So Jesus shows his ignorance. Now, of course, if he had just grown up in that area, he'd know that too. So maybe there's something more going on here. But then, if he's really God, why doesn't he just zap the fig tree and it brings forth figs? 
And of course, why would God have to be eating anyways? Because God's never hungry, and so he couldn't have been God anyways. Okay? Now, we listen to that, and we go, and you wouldn't even make a good Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> I mean, really, at least they have the New World Translation, you know. I mean, no, you're not even a good Jehovah's Witness. But laughing, which is sort of, it's natural for us, because you're like, it, it strikes you as ridiculous. It's not striking him as ridiculous. He thinks that's a really good argument. And so, sometimes we don't even answer because we've never even thought about how to respond to something like that. The, answer, the fundamental answer that he needs to hear is, you are assuming, you are assuming that God cannot take on human flesh. That is your beginning assumption. They deny the incarnation. God can't do that. That's, what you're, that's where you have to start. But, how do you respond to that kind of thing? That's a good question. Now, sometimes it gets a little angry. Like when I debated Jalal Abu al Uh-oh. previous debate he had done with my friend David Wood. And then what was the thing that made him most angry? Ascribing a son to Allah. I was defending the deity of Christ. That makes us angry. Uh, and there were some people there. There was a Muslim. I didn't hear it. But I actually got up at one point during this debate and I was pointing out how Jalal was just massacring the Bible. He was twisting the original language of the Bible, which he doesn't know. And I said, what if I got up and treated the Quran the way the Jalal is treating the Bible? And I was told by people in the audience later that one of the Muslims in the audience, I didn't catch it, said, we would kill you. Said it loud enough that they could hear him. So uh, that was an interesting debate. One last one. And then uh, what we'll do is, because I'm pushing these in here, is we'll take questions uh, tomorrow, if you don't mind, because I need to try to wrap up as close to 8.30 as I can. I want you to listen to this one so that you do not leave this evening. Maybe this is the only night you're going to hear. Maybe you're not going to be able to be with us tomorrow. I don't want you to leave with the wrong impression. The Figtri argument is not the best that Islam has to offer. And the problem that sometimes we have is we see these folks on television and we, we get the idea that that's, this is all Islam has to offer. 
And so I believe the next clip I have here uh, is a portion of my debate with uh, Shabir Ali from Biola University in 2006. Now, once again, ask yourself the question, what if you were talking to Shabir? How would you respond to him? You have to turn this one up. Is there any way that you can give to us to explain to us uh, how we can determine what is still inspired in the New Testament and what is not? Well, I believe that uh, Muslims have a simple answer to this in saying that whatever is in the Quran, uh, that would be a judge of whatever is here in the Bible. So whatever the Bible agrees with the Quran, that obviously is inspired. What uh, is contradictory is obviously not from God. And that which is neutral, neither in agreement nor in disagreement, uh, may be treated with some bit of silence. Usually the classical scholars have recommended silence. But I believe that uh, Muslims who are quite familiar with the Gospels and uh, familiar with the development of, of the text over time can make some judgments, uh, though these judgments will be tentative. So, everything about the cross, resurrection, atonement, deity of Christ, Jesus the Son of God, the Holy Spirit is a divine person, not an angel Gabriel. All of that stuff is, is uninspired and, and a corruption of the original intention of the Testament in light of the Quran. I'm also going to say that uh, the Quran of Revelation is here now as the Christian word of God that teaches us that there is only one God, that he is his Messiah, but nevertheless a servant, a messenger of the one true God. And so anything that is contrary to that, something that teaches, for example, uh, that human responsibility is described in the Quran is to be somehow evaded, um, is that, that would be contrary and would be thought to be a later development. Now, of course, that could be studied from another angle. One can look at the history and development of Christian teaching over time. One can look at the Gospels, uh, even without the Islamic opposition. And it seems to me that uh, many uh, biblical scholars are coming to conclusions which are very close to the main conclusions which the Muslims insist on. That Jesus was uh, an apocalyptic uh, prophet, like the prophets of the Old Testament. Uh, he preached uh, the belief in God, similar to the belief in that was known. Uh, from the Jewish prophets, since he himself was Jewish, he lived in the Jewish Leo. He did feel like Jesus found on the cross and marked his Lord. It doesn't have to be done. The scholars are so numerous, it would be hard for us to list them and, and to, to name them now. So, but is there, is there any, uh, is there any New Testament book, uh, that Mark, for example, which you refer to many times, Mark, clearly identifies Jesus, the Son of God, but the words of his mouth that you would never be able to study the Muslims, is that correct? Well, it is clear that even Mark uh, must have uh, and suffered from a similar sort of phenomenon that we described in the case of Matthew. And John Bogus has made specifically that point in the book Jesus, the Unanswered Questions. If we look at Mark chapter 1, verse 1, which is then Bible begins to begin with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it is noted in the NIV, for example, that the describing the Son of God in this particular verse uh, is not found in some of the most ancient and reliable manuscripts. So, I'm not saying that the Gospel according to Mark does not present Jesus as the Son of God, but we have to be aware of tribal changes that have affected the Gospel according to Mark as well. And that, in fact, we are working with the Gospel according to Mark only as it has come down to us. Knowing the history of tribal changes, uh, we will not be out of our grounds to wonder if, in fact, we do really have the original Martin Gospel. Would you admit that you do not have any uh, hard manuscript evidence from the first or second century? that gives to us any testament that looks like a Muslim would expect it to look like? We do not have such a document. So, as you can see, 
there is a range. And uh, Shabir has um, made a career of studying liberal uh, Christian writings. And uh, you'll notice he was not using notes. He was quoting Mark 1.1 from memory when he gave his 20-minute opening statement. He had no notes. He gave all his references from memory. Uh, and so uh, it's important to be prepared for the fig tree Muslim, but not to think that every Muslim is a fig tree Muslim. Uh, Shabir is pretty unusual, but my thought has always been you prepare for the best, and that will always prepare you for those that are less than the best, but you don't shoot for the least common denominator and then get hit by uh, someone like, uh, like a Shabir Ali or something like that. So let's, uh, let's keep that in mind. So, Tomorrow we get into what the Quran says about who God is and specifically what we believe. That's where we need to spend most of our time. Uh, what it teaches about the cross, what it teaches about salvation. Uh, and then we want to also look at some of the history of the Quran. Uh, I won't be getting into a lot of history of Muhammad. I'll try to give you a, at some point in time uh, a brief summary of his life and uh, the origins of the Quran. I'll pass the, the Arabic Quran around. Uh, you know, we've, we've got enough time to do a good basic job of, of laying a good foundation. But there will be all sorts of questions about uh, jihad and things like that that uh, you know, we might be able to touch on a little bit. Uh, I know at one point in the presentation I do touch on, on some of those, those elements. Uh, but try to give you a real good solid foundation in understanding what the Quran says about that. Uh, so that when you engage the Muslims, you can do so from a position of strength. Okay? All right. Let's, uh, let's close our time with a word of prayer.